Uh, thank you so much for being here today. Hope you brought a Bible. And this is, as Brother Tim said, a Bible-believing church. I hope we're a Bible-practicing church. I want you to turn to two books in the Bible that are right next to each other. Turn to Ecclesiastes first, chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we'll look there, and then turn to Proverbs 13, and we will look in that order at a couple of passages, and then up on the screen will be a lot of verses. I would encourage you to jot some notes down. I think this will help you this morning. Ecclesiastes 5 and Proverbs chapter 13. I want to open the message this morning, as I often do, by telling you a story And the story illustrates the main idea of the message. Many years ago, a a man, he was actually a pastor, Russell Conwell, uh, wrote a classic book called, I believe it was called Acres of Diamonds. And in that book, it told the story of an ancient Persian. Uh, This Persian's name was Ali. And he owned a very large farm. He was a wealthy man. On the farm were orchards and large grain fields and gardens. And though he was wealthy, he was very content. He was very happy. One day, Ali entertained a guest in his home. And the guest began to tell him about diamonds and how wealthy that he could be, how wealthy Ali could be if he only owned a diamond mine. And so the guest left that evening and That night when Ali went to bed, he didn't go to bed a wealthy man. He went to bed a poor man because he went to bed discontented. He began to crave diamonds. And so he sold his farm to search for these rare stones. And he traveled the whole world in search of diamonds and became so poor and so broken And so disappointed and disillusioned that he took his own life. Years later, the man that bought Ali's farm was taking his camel out to get a drink of water there by the by pond by the gardens. And as the camel was uh, getting a drink in in the the pond there, the man saw a flash of. a light there in the sands underneath the water, and he reached down and he pulled up. He thought it was a rock, but it was a beautiful stone. It was a diamond. He took it, had it examined by other people, and it was the most magnificent, valuable diamond that had ever been found in history. And uh, the story goes on to make this conclusion. Had Ali remained at home and dug, listen to this, dug in his own garden, he would have acres of diamonds instead of experiencing death in a strange land. Now, that's not a true story. It's just a parable, but yet it is a true story. And I want to make the application now and then go into the message biblically. This man already had plenty, and he was wealthy, but he did not realize it. Now, most Christians, and I'm afraid myself at times, are like this man, Ali. But it's not from a financial standpoint. It's from other areas where we're wealthy, but we do not know it. 
Now, here's what the enemy, here's what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to not only be unhappy and unjoyful, but he wants you to be ineffective. And one way he gets you to do that is to focus on areas that of life that are really of no value. Now, we're in a, a little series here of messages on how to be rich, how to be rich. And there's more than one way to be rich. Now, the title of this message, this particular message, is on how to measure wealth. Because what the devil wants you to do is he wants to convince you that the only wealth is financial. And once you buy into that, you think, well, I'm not wealthy, and you become discontent. And you do not, to use the words of the parable, you do not dig in your own garden. And you live your life year after year, decade after decade. And you die if you're a Christian and you go to heaven. And I think one day you'll look in the rearview mirror, as it were, and you realize, I was wealthy. Maybe not financially, but I was wealthy, but I never realized it. And I could have lived a happy, joyful, productive life. Now, riches are deceiving. And when I say riches there, I mean financial wealth. Is deceiving. And here's why because it promises more than it could deliver. And we focus on on these possessions, and and it doesn't matter how old you are, covetousness is a part of us. You know, the tenth commandment is thou shalt not covet. And it's really at the root of all of the other sins of the other nine commandments there when we violate those, thou shalt not covet. And covetousness is at the root of so, you know, in First Timothy chapter 6, the Bible says that uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of money. Uh, money of sorts. Some people believe money is actual, actually wrong because the Bible calls it filthy lucre. I don't believe that. I, I believe money is actually neutral. It, it's us that's the problem. It's our attitude that is the problem. Now, you have your Bible open there to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I want you to look there in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And we looked at a few verses, but I want to expand the passage this morning. This is so profound. The, the wisest man in the world at his time, and probably uh, next to the Lord Jesus Christ, the wisest man in history, wrote these words. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, look at verse 10. He that loveth silver. And I want to pause there and insert a word that's not there, as I've done when I've read it in the past few weeks. Here's what it doesn't say. It does not say, he that has silver. It doesn't say, he that has money. It says, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. You see, you, you can not be wealthy and be covetous. Sometimes we think that, well... Those people that are wealthy, they're just covetous. No, you are because you think about it. See? He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. These are words of warning. And by the way, a wealthy man wrote this from experience. Nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. This is vain. The word vain means empty. Once you get there... I think I quoted this last week. Uh, many people have climbed to the top of the ladder only to realize it's leaning against the wrong wall. 
They spent their life getting there, accumulating things, loving things, automobiles, cars, possessions, houses, clothes, power, sometimes not things, sometimes position, recognition. And they go to bed lonely. Nobody loves them. They don't love anybody. They have no close relationships because they, love, they don't love people. They love things. He that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Can you drill down in this? Do you believe this? This is the word of God. Nor he that loveth abundance with increase. I've heard people say, well, I would like to at least try. Well, here's a man with experience that has been there and done that. He says, this is vanity. Now, continue reading. When goods increased, they are increased... That eat them. Now, what does that mean? That means it just increase, increases your appetite. I just want more. I just want a bigger house. I want to expand my house. I want a bigger car. I want a new phone. I want the latest gadget. You think, well, if I get to that level, I'll be happy. No, you won't. You say, well, how do you know? Because the Bible says so. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving or except the beholding of them with their eyes? In other words, the only joy is your expectation. The reality of it is that it's not going to satisfy you. And he continues here, such wisdom here. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. I have that underlined. The abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. That's true. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. You can, you can buy sleep, but you can't buy rest. See, see you, can, you may can buy sleep for a little while in a pill. But you can't buy rest in your spirit. You know, some of you have attained a position that you sought. I would love to have that position. And, you know, when you're young in your career, you want the corner office and you want the parking place. You want the recognition. And then you get it. And now you're working weekends, you're working extra, and you've got the big salary. But you don't have any time off to, to enjoy. And when you do, they're calling you all the time. Now they've got used to, they had pagers, and now it's not just pagers. I mean, they can call you up and you can see their face. And they expect for you to return it right then. And by the way, I'm not against, some, someone has to do these jobs. I'm just saying that if God has equipped you, he will give you grace to do this. But there's a whole lot more to life than just achieving. There's a sore evil which I have seen under the sun. Namely, here it is, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. To their hurt. You know, my, my wife, she's out of town with Ashley right now in Brighton. And uh, in, in our poorest days, we, we were so happy. I mean, we were just so happy with crackers and bologna and mustard. And we were just so happy. We were living in Virginia. We didn't have a lot of money. And 
cars that wouldn't hardly make it. You had to have car inspections every year. And those were expensive. People were having to give us cars. We couldn't afford cars. And so people would give us cars, you know, that they couldn't drive any longer. And, and we were very thankful for those cars. These were very good people. Riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail. And watch this. And he begetteth a son. He has children, a, a son. And there is nothing in his hand. What, what is in the hand of your kids when they're born? There's nothing. They're not wearing anything. They don't have it. They don't possess anything. As he came forth out of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. So he's born with nothing, and when he dies, he's not going to carry anything away. I read a story this past week of a, of a well-known speaker, and he was a preacher, and he had gone to another location to preach, and he would left his suits and so uh, he had an idea, this true story. And so he called the funeral home. He knew that the funeral home carried suits for, to bury people in. He said, hey, do you have this size suit? I'd like to buy one from you because they'd be discounted. And so they said, yeah, we'll do that. We'll sell it to you. So he got a nice suit at a discount. I know some of you are getting an idea right now. Okay. Maybe you didn't know this. And so he got, the, he got the suit, and he thought, boy, I scored one then, didn't I? But to his shock, the suit had no pockets. There were no pockets. What corpse needs pockets? Because when you're born, you don't have anything in your hand. When you die, you don't have anything in your hand. I know your loved ones are putting things in there, but they're putting the things in there. You're not saying, oh, by the way, put this in the coffin. Because all of that, all of that is attained with the influence that you've had with people, the people you've cared about. How many times have I told you this? Life is about loving God and loving people. That's it. I mean, even at work. Even at work, you had to produce, but you better have some relationships at work. You better love people while you're at work. Treat your people right. Not just so you can get ahead. Sometimes people skills are manipulative. Go learn these people skills as a salesperson so you can get ahead. How about just loving people if you get to sale or not? How about just loving people as a boss? You may have to let them go later. How about just being good to people? And this is also a sore evil that in all points as it came, so shall he go. Now here's the line. Here it is what I want you to look at. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? Some people call this chasing the wind. You're never going to catch the wind. You're never going to catch success. I listened to a lot of podcasts. I was listening to one just recently about your values and having a, a mission statement for your life. And, 
And it was talking about, uh, you know, there's two ways you can determine a mission statement. Well, there's more than this, but I, I like to use these. One is your, your 50th wedding anniversary. And another is at your funeral. Let me illustrate. At your 50th wedding anniversary and, and your, the people you care about, your children and your grandchildren stand up and they say things at your 50th wedding anniversary. What do you want them to say? What are the things you want them to say? And at your funeral, when, when people stand up and talk, maybe not even publicly, but, but they're just gathered around and, and they're talking, what do you want people to say? Not to stroke your ego, but in a reality, in a real way, what do you want people to say? Well, that becomes your mission statement. If you want it to be said then, then you better behave that way now. And I remember I would go through this even with teenagers and college students to try to help them to extrapolate out in the future that, that these are realities. And most of these things are relationships. Nobody's going <clears> to <throat> congratulate you at your funeral for how many, how many hours you spent at the office. Now, you have to do it, I understand, but, but some of us do more. I heard a, a new little line, maybe you've heard this before, but I like this. They said, you need to live for your six. Live for your six. And that's a military term. Some of you have heard that. Your six is, you know, it's a clock. Your six is your back. It's, I have your six, I have your back. And I thought, well, that's what he was saying, but that's not what he was saying. Live for your sick. Live for the sick that's going to carry your coffin one day. Now, you can expand that to how many ever people. I like the idea. Are you living for the people that matter that are going to come to your funeral or, or that are going to weep over you when you're gone? Listen, most of the people that you work for, they're not even going to show up. They're just going to get somebody. They're going to clean your office out and you're going to be history. You need to be productive. You need to be a testimony. But is this a word? You need to be missable. Not just the company's bottom line, but to the environment that you bring to that place. Because you were a servant. Because you love Christ. And here's a verse. Look at Proverbs. Turn the page over a few pages over. Chapter 13. <coughs> Excuse me. This is kind of our, our theme verse. Uh, in fact, in your, in your bulletin that you were given, there's a little memory card for you to memorize this verse. And basically, this, I, this verse says there's more, more than one way to be wealthy. And I'll be honest, this is why I'm preaching these messages because of this verse. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 7. There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. I've read this verse every single time in the last few weeks. I have these phrases underlined. Rich, yet hath nothing. Poor, yet hath great riches. And that's it. Rich, yet hath nothing. Poor, yet hath great riches. There's more than one way to be wealthy. And there's more than one way to be poor. You see, spiritual wealth is superior to financial wealth because financial wealth will not make you happy. 
It'll make you comfortable for a while. Maybe not your conscience. It won't bring you joy. But it won't make you happy. Because if you measure financial wealth, if you measure wealth only in finances, you miss the best part of life. Now, we can measure true wealth by applying four truths. I'm going to go through the first three and then spend just a few minutes on the last one. Number one, we measure true wealth by God's standards. By God's standards. And that standard is in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 7. Because we think there's only one way to be wealthy, but there's more than one way to be wealthy, and spiritual wealth is superior than financial wealth. Now, here's what we think. Here's what we think. And all of us think this way, even, even though we believe the truth, there are times that we think this. We th- here's what we think. We think that if I had more money, I'd be happier. And here's what we think. We think if I, if I had more, I would give more. Haven't we all said that? Boy, if, if I could just add on to the house, if I, could, if I just had another car, if I just had fill in the blank, I, I'd feel better, I'd be happier. Or we've all said this, you know, I, I wish I had the money so I could fill in the blank. And that's really not true. Hey, you make a give more. <clears throat> now, you may not can give $500, but you could give five. And I put it this way, if you won't give five, you won't give $500. And how many, how many of us have said this? We'll say, you know, if I had a million dollars, I would. No, you wouldn't. And that's why God doesn't give it to us, because he knows our hearts. He knows we couldn't handle it. He knows what it would do to our hearts. Remember, remember when you made uh, $200 a week, a little over $10,000 a year, and you tithed and you wrote that $20 check? And then now you make $2,000 a week, and boy, it's hard to write $200. Because that's a lot of money. It's the same percentage, but it's, that's $200. That's a lot of money. I told you a story about the, the fellow that came to the pastor, and he said, Pastor, I'm having a hard time. And that was a conundrum. He told him, he said, when I, when I made just a little bit of money, I was making a couple hundred dollars. It was easy to, you know, put in $200. But now God has prospered me, and I'm just struggling to, to write that big check. The pastor said, oh, I can help you. He said, I need help. He said, let's pray. They got down on their knees. The pastor put his arm around his buddy. He said, Father, I pray that you would reduce this man's income back to where he was so that you would make him a liberal giver. He said, whoa, whoa. He said, this is not what I wanted. He said, well, you said you wanted to be a generous man. He said, generosity is generosity, whatever the level is. You see, you must, if you want to be a wealthy person, you must accept God's standard. Now, listen carefully. I want you to listen carefully what I'm about to say. Not many, not many wealthy people are, are generous. Not many godly people are rich. 
And let me tell you what I didn't say. I didn't say not any. But there's not many. And Jesus said that. Now let me give you the exception to the rule. Job. Job was a godly man. But Job was not rich because he was godly. In Job chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright. That means he was a man of integrity. He was ethical. He was whole. W-H-O-L-E in his, in his dealings with people. He wasn't crooked. And he, well, look at this. He was one that feared God. He eschewed or he hated evil. He hated sin. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very great household or servants to help him run this ranch, as it were. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East, one of the greatest men on the planet. One of the most well-known men. And he was a rich man, but he was not rich because he was godly. He was a rich man that was godly. Now, the, the attitude at that time, and it carried over into Bible days, it's sad to say it's, it's true with a lot of people today. They think that, well, people have things because God is pleased with them. Sometimes God will give you a limp like he did Jacob because he is pleased with you. Sometimes you experience reversal and failure because God wants you to know that He is with you and to be dependent upon Him. Some of you have reversals because God is pleased with you. And so one of the reasons that Job went through his trial and he lost all of these things was to debunk the fact that he was rich because he was godly. In Job chapter 1 and verse 9 Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught or for nothing? See that? Oh, Job, Job doesn't fear you because he loves you. He fears you because of all the stuff you've given him. Because he's wealthy. Take his health. Take his family. Take his wealth. See what he does. He'll turn his back on you. You know the story. He suffered as as few men in history, perhaps more than anyone besides the Lord Jesus Christ when he suffered on the cross. Would Job serve and love God if the benefits were removed? And it's a good question for you and I. You know, we read that story about Job and say, man, look at the ending. But when he was going through it, he didn't see the ending. And he persevered and he trusted. It's just a marvelous book. Job was rich. And he was a godly man. But Job was a godly man first who happened to be rich. Abraham was rich. He was the only man in the Bible that was called the friend of God. And he had a lot of money. He was had a good business mind. Genesis chapter 13 and verse 2. The Bible says, And Abram was very rich. Now, if it says you're rich, you got a lot, but he was very rich. He was a cattleman. He had silver and he had gold. He was a good man. He was a godly man. The man Boaz, you read the book of Ruth, and Boaz, um, 
He had a lot financially. King David was the only man in the Bible called a man after God's own heart. And David gave so much to the building of the temple. And it was a very wealthy man. I was thinking about this uh, just this week about Lydia, the first convert in Europe. And this lady was an, an astute business lady. Because in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, the Bible says a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira. And she was saved there in Philippi. Paul and Silas wanted to Christ. You can read about her in Acts 16. But she sold purple, which came from a shellfish. And they were very hard to, to catch because of the way they had these cages. They had to float out, take them out in the ocean there and then they had to float them and then they had to catch a whole bunch of these shells to extract a whole lot of this this very rare and exquisite uh dye that came out and then they would they would and it was thyatira was a region there where they they did a lot of this and then they would dye these cloths and she sold purple she sold a lot of these it was very very expensive not a lot of people did it, but she had a shop. She sold purple. She, she was a wealthy woman. She was a godly woman. She got saved. So the Bible's not saying it's wrong to have money. I'm not saying that. It is not wrong to have money, but it's wrong for money to have you. There's a difference. God wants to have your heart. And when riches or comfort or other allegiances or power or authority or position or those things begin to replace the supremacy of God, you're at a place in your life where you're, you're going to yield to those things and you're going to go down the wrong road. And the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what he said. Listen carefully. It's difficult. Here's what Jesus said. It's difficult for wealthy people to get saved. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. I remember when we uh, ran our bus ministry. When I was a teenager, I ran a bus ministry at my home church. And uh, do you know where we went? Do you know where we filled our buses up? Some of you haven't run bus ministries. We take these buses out on Saturday. We would go out and we knock on doors. And, and uh, today people are suspicious. You can still do this, but you have to be so careful today because of the things that are going on. Well, let me tell you where we didn't go, where, where we could have gone, but we wouldn't have filled the buses up. We didn't go to the wealthy parts of town because people aren't interested in general, not specifically, but in general. But you go to the poverty parts of town, man, we pack those buses out. And many times, sad to say, we were babysitting for, for those parents that had been drinking all night or whatever. And sometimes they wanted to sleep in. Sometimes they just wanted some time away from the noise. And we take those little boys and girls and tell them about Jesus. Some rich fruit from that. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 23. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they... That have riches enter into the kingdom of God. These are, these are Jesus' words. 
And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered, answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard, he repeats himself, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He gives a little analogy there. He's showing the, the impossibility of it. Some people say that there was a, a place there, a, a, a little area where they called it the eye of the needle, where camels had a hard time going through and so forth. But, and he was referring to a, a place there. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Anybody can be saved. But whatever you set your heart on, that becomes your God. And for many people, and maybe for some of you, that's your God. I've known men, and I don't know why this, this, this age becomes a standard, but it does. And, and here's what they say. By the time I'm 30, I'm going to be a millionaire. And it's not 28, it's not 25 or 40, it's 30. I've heard that number a number of times. They say, by the time I'm 30, I want to be a millionaire. And they'll set their heart on it. And again, goals aren't wrong. But you rarely hear anybody. Have you ever heard anybody say this? By the time I'm 30, I want to master the Bible. By the time I'm 30, I want to memorize a book of the Bible, by the time, or, or whatever, a, a spiritual discipline. You, you hardly ever hear things like that. Money is, is simply a tool. That's all it is. It's neutral. It's a tool. Money gives you options. The more money you have, the more options you have. I'm just kind of being earthy here. And that's one of the nice things about it, frankly. I mean, you, you have more options. Doesn't make you a better person. Doesn't make you a worse person. You just have more options. Money is a result of the spiritual gift of giving. Usually, often, there is a spiritual gift of giving. And this is not always true. But many times, people that have the spiritual gift of giving also have the gift of making money. I've seen that happen. <clears throat> I tell young preachers, I said, you know, and I've tried to do this as, as a pastor. I said, people have the spiritual gift of giving. They never give under pressure. They shut down. I've been in meetings where preachers will try to press people. And, and the people that can give the most, they, don't, they shut down because they give under divine compulsion as God instructs them to give. And people begin to pressure them and it shuts down. Money is a result of the spiritual gift of giving. Some of you have that spiritual gift and God has given you the ability as a businessman or a businesswoman to be, to be able to create income. Money is an indicator. It indicates what you love. Money reveals your idols. It reveals what you worship, what you sacrifice for, what you give your money and time to. And again, the problem is that money, money is the indicator. You look at your checkbook and your calendar, and that reveals your, your priorities. And my money reveals my heart, what I love. 
my wife, uh, it was Tuesday night, and she said, uh, I would love to see Ashley and Brighton. They're down in Orlando. And uh, she's always surprising me. I'd love to surprise her. She said, I have $200. My birthday, John gave me $100. And somebody else, I can't remember, somebody else gave me I have $200 for my birthday. You know, I can drive down there. I said, no, I don't want you to drive. Maybe we can find a flight. Of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is the night before. We're not going to get a 200 Maybe Southwest. I went to Nashville. and No, that's not working. Well, I know we're not getting anything out of Huntsville. I found a round-trip flight from Huntsville to Orlando for $230. I gave her $30. (laughs) No, I didn't. She didn't. And uh, she went in there. She surprised Ashley. Would never scrimp and scrape and make her feel bad about that stuff. You know, some people... Probably my kids say, well, my dad is a soft touch. And and I I believe in a budget. But I think sometimes you save so much for a rainy day. Your kids get old. You never spend money for for things for your kids. You never do things with your kids. My kids, you know, they're they're not ever going to, when they get old, they're not going to say, well, my dad, we we had a great house. We had great cars. You know what they're going to say? We took fun trips. Because that's where I put my money. You say, do you like to travel? Mm, nah, nah. But I love my family. Paula likes to travel. So I learned to like to travel. And I like to do things with them. And so, so money is an indicator Jesus said in Luke chapter 16 and verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. The word mammon means material wealth, greed, the idea of profit. You can't always be seeing profit in something. You can't always be getting your calculator out and trying to, trying to get the advantage. Money is a test. Again, it, it tests who's in charge of your life. And then money is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for me to show God that I'm a faithful steward and to invest into His work. And that's how you measure true wealth by, by God's standards. These are God's standards. Number two, we measure true wealth by contentment. By contentment. You know, the world says that gain is godliness. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 5. Gain is godliness. But Paul told Timothy the next verse in 1 Timothy 6 is, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The word great gain means financial gain. But he says it's not found in finances. He says godliness with content. You want great gain? You want to have a lot? Be content. Learn to be content. I love this quote by Spurgeon. It's not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. You see, the happy man is a wealthy man. It's a guy that doesn't have the ulcers because he's, he's trying to get ahead all the time. 
Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher, said, Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. Because when you're discontented, you begin to make bad decisions. You begin to step on people. You begin to scheme. You measure true wealth by contentment. I love what Christ has done for my heart. I, and sometimes that's in the worst circumstances when it's tested. Number three, we measure true wealth by spiritual blessings. And we have more spiritual blessings than material blessings. I talked to you about this last week. By spiritual blessings. Psalm 68, 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with blessings. Even the God of our salvation, Selah. He daily loadeth us. What I have in the Lord Jesus Christ is more than enough, and yet He daily loads me with blessing. I woke up this morning <laughs> with more mercy. I'm a rich man. If He never does anything else for me, I'm, I'm so wealthy. Let me just mention a few things and dive into this and we'll finish next week. Number four, we measure true wealth by God's favor. By God's favor. I want you to hang on here as I just kind of hit the edge of this. I want you to leave thinking about this. The favor of God is one of my favorite subjects. And I really talk to myself about it more than I talk to others. You cannot earn the favor of God. The favor of God has the idea of the grace of God, but it's the sustained grace of God. The Old Testament word is, is the loving kindness of God, the steadfast, faithful grace of God. A performance-based approach to Christianity makes you insecure, but it also removes the peace and joy of being a Christian. Everything is performance-based. Well, if I do this, maybe God will love me. If I do this, maybe God will approve of me. Listen, <clears throat> you can't do anything to get God to save you. You can't do anything to get God to love you. He already loves you. God just loves you. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you how I know that. I know that from the Bible, but I know that from another reason. And I hesitate to say this because some of you... Or, or, or may squirm at this, but I know that because of my dad. Some people didn't have a good father. I had a good father, and and he gave me a good image of my heavenly father. And maybe you didn't, and I'm sorry about that. But don't let a bad image of an earthly father diminish the biblical image of your heavenly father. And you kept trying to get your earthly father to give you attention, and you. Qu- and maybe you had a severe father who had a severe look. And there was never any mercy. There was never any kindness. There was never any approval. Listen, your heavenly father loves you. And he wants you to come to him. You cannot do anything to become a child of God, but rest upon what he has already accomplished on the cross. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
A wage is something you get for something you do. It's what's your paycheck. The wages of sin is death. Do you know what I get for my sin? I get death. Separation from God eternally in a lake of fire. But the gift of God, a gift is something that you can't earn, you can't barter, you can't trade. The gift of God is eternal life. And eternal life is not through the church or through the baptistry. The eternal life is through the person of Lord Jesus Christ. And the only thing, the only thing I bring to the equation of eternal life are my sins. That's it. And he offers me the gift of eternal life. And all you do with a gift is, is you receive it. The moment I try to earn or I try to perform for it, it ceases to become a gift. And you cannot earn heaven. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul wrote this verse, and when Paul contemplated this thought in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, here's what he wrote. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein, that is, wherein His grace, He, God the Father, hath made us accepted in the Beloved. The Beloved is His Son, Jesus The Father made us accepted in His Son, Jesus, who is His beloved, because of His grace. And the moment, the very moment that I came to Christ, I was accepted. I'm not rejected anymore. The word accepted there means highly favored, to be specially honored, to be fully accepted. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is this condition is unchanging. And so from the time that I was a nine-year-old boy, on February the 18th, 1968, when I came to Jesus Christ, and I brought my sins to Him, not my performance, but I brought my sins to Him, and I said, Jesus, all that I have is my sins. And He cleansed me, and He forgave me, and He made me His son, He made me His child. And He accepted me, and I became highly favored And He has loved me since that day. And He doesn't look at me as a disappointment. He doesn't look at me as a reject. He doesn't look at me as stupid. He looks at me as His child. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For God has made Jesus to be sin for us. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took all of my sins. And he took your sins. He took our adultery and our fornicating and our cursing and our idolatry and our iniquity. He took every sin that mankind ever committed. And he took it on him. And when you come to Christ... And he accepts you as his beloved. He gives you his righteousness. And when God the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his Son. And he sees holy and just and faithful and kind and loving. He doesn't see you in your sins anymore. 
And you talk about a security, something that you do not deserve. You talk about a wealth. You talk about an acceptance. This is not performance-based. I've heard people say, Preacher, if I believe what you believe, and I believe that I could not lose my salvation, it would make me proud. Oh, no, it wouldn't. Oh, no, it wouldn't. You would be so humble that you do not deserve this because of all that he has done. You would just, you would just elevate him because he has accepted you. And he has transformed you inwardly and he has elevated you where you have a place of being highly favored. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, the Bible says, And be found in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, or my performance, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And that happened for me on February the 18th, 1968, when I put my faith in Christ. And he gave me his righteousness. And I'm highly favored. Now, would you listen carefully? I'm going to say one more thing, make a little transition here. I'm almost finished. Listen. A lot of us get that part right. Oh, I know that I'm saved. But we mess up the next part. We say, okay, now, as a Christian, what do I have to do to grow? You grow just like you're saved. You, you are saved by grace and you grow in grace. You see, it is not in me to become like Christ. I, I don't grow like Christ by performing Well, I need to grow in love, so God help me to love them. I need to grow in joy, so help me to have joy. That's me trying to summon it up. It's not in me. I don't have it in me. So the Bible word is sanctify, which means to become like Christ. God saves you not on a performance basis, but on a grace basis. And God grows you, listen carefully, not on a performance basis, but on a grace basis. It's the same principle. And what happens is is many people, they believe they're saved by grace, but they believe they grow by their self-effort. No. God gives you responsibilities, but even those responsibilities, He gives you the desire and ability to do that, period. Paul wrote to Galatians in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. He said, this only would I learn of you, received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish? And here's the question, rhetorical question. Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? You see that? Are you so foolish? When you, when you started out in the Spirit, are you, are you growing now in the flesh? No, you don't. You, you, you grow through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where the spiritual wealth... Listen, you are so wealthy that God does this for you. It's all through His grace. It's all Him. So here's what happens. My position is that I'm a child of God. My position is one of favor. And sometimes even when I get 
not out of that position, but I do not behave out of that position. It's like I'm a child. Both my parents are in heaven now. But I'm a child of, of Cotton and Linda Johnson. And they're my parents. But sometimes I did not behave worthy of that name they gave me. And sometimes our fellowship was broken, but that position was always the same. And their favor was the same towards me, even though my behavior, my performance was not consistent. Now listen to this statement. God does not have favorites, but he does have intimates. And people that are close to God are not close to God because God favors them, but because they pursue him. In a family with more than one child, sometimes there are children that are closer to their parents than others. And it ought not be because the parents favor the child. But I think sometimes a a child will say, well, they favor this one. Well, how about maybe that one child is more obedient? How about that one child pursues the other parent and calls them more or shows up more or wants to talk more? And how about that the parent has no favorites. They love the children the same, but they're more intimate with the others because the other child pursues them. Listen, God favors all of His children the same, but He's intimate with some of His children more because of the choice of the child. James chapter 4 and verse 8, the Bible says, "Draw Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. See, it's your choice. You draw nigh to God, He'll draw nigh to you. Yeah, but I know someone that God seems to favor. No, God favors you too, but you can draw nigh to Him. Psalm 145 and verse 18, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon Him, to all that call upon Him in truth. He's nigh to all that call upon Him. God loves you. He, he favors all of His children. He doesn't have any favorites, but He does have intimates. It's your privilege. What, what a wealthy father we have. What a wealthy opportunity that you have. The favor of God is upon you. And He stands there ready with open arms if you would draw nigh unto Him. John chapter 14 and verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them. The word keep means to observe, to guard, to attend to carefully. Has the idea of of your relationship with the word of God. He that has my commandments and, 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 and attends to my word. He it is that loves me, God says. You're loving God now, not just him loving you. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him. Now notice this. And I will manifest, God says, myself unto him. That means to make known. It means a full disclosure. You say, well, that means God shows more favor. In the sense of full disclosure, yes. Because you are drawing nigh to God. God doesn't have favorites, but he does have intimates. But this is open to everyone. If you would keep his commandments, it does, it's more than just a dry obedience. It's having a proper relationship with God through his word. Two verses later, John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep, there's the word again, 
my words. My Father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. The word abode means to live with, to be close to. You will sense my presence with you. Are you his child this morning? He loves you. He favors you. He's elevated you. But are you drawing near to Him in prayer and through His Word? Are you pursuing Him? I want to talk to you about this next week. Are you pursuing Him? And as you do that, He opens His heart even more to you. John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. You are my friends. If you do whatsoever, I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father have I made known unto you. You see the degrees there of intimacy, a higher level of intimacy. Not of acceptance, but of intimacy. I love all of my kids. But I'll be honest, there there are times where the intimacy is affected because of sin. Or maybe they'll pull away because of something. But the favor, the, the door's always open. You pursue your Father, pursue Him. Someone said God always gives His best to those who leave the choice to Him. Always, always, always gives His best. To those who leave the choice to Him. Always. And it's a wealthy choice. It may not be money. Sometimes He won't even heal you. He'll heal you later. But He he will give you some good things. He'll be kind to you. He'll be gracious to you. If you measure wealth by only finances, you're going to miss the best part of life. True wealth is measured by God's favor. And if you're His child this morning, God has accepted you as His son and His daughter. He loves you. This morning, do you know Christ personally? Have you rested in His love and His forgiveness in the cross? Have you come to Christ? Do you know His permanent love, His permanent favor? He has not rejected you. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Come unto me, come to Christ. And for those of you that do know Him, are you pursuing God's heart and keeping His word? Should you to bow your heads with me if you would this morning? giving you some very important truths this morning. I believe the enemy robs us of our privilege by lying to us. As a teenager, boy, if you were only popular, if you had that boy, if you had that girl, you'd be happy. He convinces people to take their lives and lies to them because they can't have certain things. I want you to understand God is not the God of rejection. 
He has created a pathway out of sin and out of hell. Through the cross and the empty tomb, He died for you. For those of you that have received Him as your Savior, you are His son and His daughter. You are a child of the King. This is not a pep talk. This is a reality. He loves you. He cares for you. You will never fall from that position. He, he loves you. I wonder if there's anybody here this morning say, Preacher, I, I don't know the Lord. I don't have a relationship with Him. I know about Him. I know about God. I know about Jesus, but I've never trusted Him as my Savior. If you'd like to be saved this morning, Christ died for you on a cross for your sins, for your rebellion. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you bow your heart before Him and just say, God, I need you. I need a Savior. Save me not only for my sins, but for myself. And you're not saved by prayer, but I would lead you in a prayer. Just pray from your heart to God's heart. You don't need to pray out loud. But by faith, pray this prayer. And mean it. Something like this. Dear God, I have sinned. And I have broken your law. And I'm sorry about that. Would you forgive me today? And when I die, would you take me to heaven? Make me a Christian. Help me to know that acceptance that preacher's talking about this morning. I want to know you. I want to have a relationship with you. Help me walk with you and be pleasing to you. Forgive me of all my sins. Make me a new person. If you prayed that prayer, you meant it. Romans ten thirteen says, For whosoever shall call upon them, the Lord shall be saved. If you're here this morning and as a Christian, you've been allowing the enemy just like a boxer beats up an opponent. He's just beating you to a core mentally because you're believing his lies. Listen, you're a child of God. Pray, Father, as we leave today for my friends that are here that have been convinced by the enemy that they're poor when they're wealthy spiritually that they're poor when they have your approval upon their life that they have a father a good father they've been accepted and loved and cared for I pray for any that are here this morning that trusted Christ as Savior or wanted to Pray that they would see me after church and just take my hand and say, Preacher, I, I prayed that prayer and I meant it. So I could give them some literature and show them what they can do to grow. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and how he saved us and has made a difference in our lives. Help us to walk in joy this week and happiness and contentment for all you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad you were here today. Let's pray for one another. Please pray for...
Uh, Naomi Ramont, her brother died uh, unexpectedly, I believe it was Friday, and uh, early in the morning. And they'll be traveling. Are they on the road right now? They left. And um, just, just please pray for them. She was very close to her brother.